So our text is Genesis chapter 39. We're reading the entire chapter. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, He had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in in his this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the things that you uh, show us through your word. 
um, how you show us yourself, how you show us ourselves, and how you show us your son, Jesus Christ, um, how in, in the Old Testament you foretell his coming, um, in the New Testament you fulfill the prophecies and, and types that we see in the Old Testament. God, you, you draw us close to yourself. You convict us by your word. Um, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this objective source that we have, um, that we can go to, um, and know you truly. Father, we pray again, as we've already talked, um, on this Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, Father, we, we pray and continue to ask for your mercy. God, and, and your movement among our nation um, concerning the genocide that is abortion in the United States. Father, we, um, while we thank you for, um, God, the unmitigated good that has occurred in the overthrow of Roe versus Wade, God, the fact that we have a federal government that no longer positively endorses the act of abortion. Father, we recognize that that has not changed the issue. And most importantly, Lord, and we always knew that this was the case, it has not changed hearts. Um, that that people continue to to believe um, what they desire when it comes to um, the life of an unborn child. God, they have their own beliefs. They have their own values. They see that child um, through the lens of their own wisdom and not through the lens of your word, through the reality that each child is made in the image of God, um, that each child is worthy of, of love and of life, and that no one should be able to take that from them um, except you, Lord, God, that you are the only one who has authority over life and death. God, we ask that you would minister to our country, God, to our local authorities, um, God, to our state authorities, to our, to our uh, federal authorities, God, that you would work through all the means of government, um, to continue to open people's eyes to the horror of abortion. Father, we ask that you would help us to to serve and to minister to um, those who are in the midst of of unplanned pregnancies, um, who who are are perhaps not thinking in a biblical context and yet are having to make very um, big decisions that will affect um, them and the lives of their children forever. God, help us to come alongside, help us to to minister, help us to be a voice of of truth and of care um, for those people. Um, God, we we pray for organizations like the Pregnancy Resource Center in Blount County um, that are, are ministering to particularly to young women, but also to young men um, as, as they find themselves making these decisions. Um, God, there are so many things um, that, that go into this. God, we ask that you would work and bless, that you would forgive our nation, that you would have mercy on it concerning these things. Um, God, we recognize that, that 
if you were to deal with us in the way that we deserved for the things that we have done, um, God, that we would be obliterated. And yet you have shown mercy um, and you have worked through your people to show care and kindness to those um, who are who are in crisis. So help us to do that, Lord. Um, help us to continue to have these issues on our hearts and minds. Let them not slip to to um, the back burner and let us not think about them as if they are things that have been solved and, and dealt with. Father, as we, as we go to your word, we pray that you would use it to shape us, that we thank you for the churches of Blount County that have preached your word this day. We ask for a blessing on those messages that you would use, uh, your word that has gone forth, that it would not return void, that it would change hearts, that it would convict, that it was encouraged, that it would challenge in all the ways that you know in the lives of each, uh, person that heard it this Lord's day. Um, God, and that in these things that you would stir up the people of Blount County um, to, uh, God, personal revival, to family revival, to church revival, to community revival, God, and that, that there would be revival to the ends of the earth um, because of the working of your spirit, because of the faithfulness of your people. And we ask for these blessings for our congregation and our families and our homes. We ask that for our, our community. Um, we love you, Father. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, um, let's jump in because I know we are, we are, um, running a little, um, behind time. So as we come through our story, you remember where we're at. Um, uh, last week, Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers. Things now have gone from bad, um, to a little bit better actually, but then they end up getting pretty bad again. And that is the pattern that we see and that we mentioned last week that we will reiterate over the course of this message. There's a pattern in the, the story of Joseph of humiliation, that leads to exaltation, that leads to salvation. Um, a picture that you see um, in, in the life of, of Joseph, you see it in other stories in the Bible, as other characters will be types of Christ, particularly in the life of David. You see a life that is moder- that is that is patterned on this idea of um, going through a time of humiliation that will lead to exaltation that eventually leads to salvation. And ultimately, we see it in the life of Christ as we talk about these types um, that we see in the book of Genesis. It's in the midst of that humiliation um, when any of us experience it, right? We all experience these times where we go through these moments of humiliation, where we are brought low. Okay, And we have to say that, yes, sometimes that is because of our own sin and our own foolishness, but ultimately it is because the Lord is working in us that he's doing something, that he's allowing us to be um, humbled in that time. And and this passage presents us with, with sort of a dual emphasis, maybe, that would be things that we should be particularly concerned with when we are going through a time of humiliation. And that is this. While we are in that, that valley, if you want to call it, that we would recognize and live lives of integrity, even in the midst of that, and also that we would recognize the continued presence of the Lord in our, in our lives. And that's what we see in this story. So Joseph ends up in the house of an Egyptian official, and quickly he finds himself 
after the humiliation of being sold into slavery, now he's exalted again, um, at least in a way. He's certainly still a slave, and so there's there's a there's an issue there. But he is placed over the entire household of his new master. And so in verse six it says, "So he, the master, left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate." All right, and so, um. Joseph has been exalted again out of his humiliation. He is going to find another cycle of humiliation and then exaltation before we get to the end of the story. But we are also told an interesting detail about Joseph here that sets the stage for the drama that is to come. And it's an interesting little, especially if you, if you look at the Hebrew, it's an interesting little thing. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, lie with me. So her proposition is meant to be blunt, right? Um, it gives us insight into the nature of her character and her advances, the wording of it, right? There is no seduction here, but there is command. She is in a position of power. Over him, and she demands that she satisfy her lust. And so we see these two pictures of this temptation in the passage, two strategies that the devil uses to de- derail God's people just in the temptations of this woman. On the first side, there is this brazen, bold, in your face attack and command to lie with me. So she, we know that this is the way sin works sometimes, right? It almost surprises you. It comes out of nowhere. It feels like the force of it is, is something that you almost can't, um, keep at bay. And that's the way sometimes we are attacked with temptation. But then he, he says no. He, 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 he does not give in to that. And then in verse 10, it talks about this other side of temptation, this persistent, long-term attack, an attempt to wear somebody down um, in their holiness. And so in verse 10, it says, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, her or to be with her, right? So, so she, out of nowhere, makes this forceful, aggressive attack on him. He rebuffs her, and then, but that's, she, she's she's not... That's not the end of it, right? There is a constant, continual, day-by-day, nagging, hinting, insinuating, tempting that goes on, all right? There's there's that interesting uh, detail that we're given, um, and it's and it sort of seems almost weird that they would put it at there, that, that Joseph is a man who's handsome in form and appearance. You know what a cool little, little nugget is? Is that there are only two people in the Bible who were addressed that way. There's only two people who were said that they were handsome in form and appearance. And that is Joseph and that is Joseph's mother, Rachel. Is the only two people. Now the wording, the 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 wording in it is beautiful with her, right? But it's because it's just saying that they are attractive essentially, right? The only two people that are talked about that way are Joseph and his mother Rachel. Incidentally, Jacob Joseph's father also expresses his desire for Rachel in a similarly blunt way. And so if you go back and look at that story, um, it's almost inappropriate the way that he, when he comes to Laban and says, I want your daughter, 
um, there is a, there's a, there's a, a blatantness to it, right? Um, a bluntness to it that, that is inappropriate even in the text, right? You just read it and you go, that's not the way you're supposed to talk about these things. But Joseph is this guy. He's good looking. He's well built. He's successful, at least within terms of, of the things that he is in charge of. Um, he is a young man in the prime of his life. And let me just say that a guy who finds himself in this position, they are not normally known for their wisdom or their chastity. Okay? Um, that is not typically what um, accentuates guys who find themselves in that position. Um, it would have been common, right? Not good, but it would have been common for a young man put in this position to give in to the woman's advances, right? But again, we see the moral integrity of Joseph in the face of that temptation. Verse 8, he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you were his wife. Then how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice, Joseph teaches us something about the nature of integrity in that passage. He teaches us something from two different sides. We owe something to the people who don't see us. And we owe something to the God who always sees us. Okay? Let me say that again. We owe something to the people who aren't there watching us and can't see our actions all the time. We owe something to those people. And also, we owe something to the God who is always watching and knows every single thing that we do. So the first thing that we see is that he he recognizes that he owes something to this man who is his master. Joseph has been betrayed before, right? And he will not become a betrayer himself. His master has been kind to him, has blessed him, has elevated him. Again, that verse 9 is an incredible statement to be said about a foreign slave. That he says, Joseph says, my master is no greater in his own home than I am, right? We are on equal footing in my master's house with the exception of access to his wife. That's the only thing that distinguishes the two of us. That's an incredible uh, blessing and elevation that that Joseph has been um, put into. Again, in our individualistic society, um, we don't like to acknowledge it, but we owe people something. We owe, in, uh, particularly people who are in authority over us. We owe um, government officials. We owe law enforcement. We owe author- uh, the the authorities in our life. We owe our parents. We owe our employers a certain something. We see that all through the, the Bible. We are, we owe honor to our fathers and mothers. We owe it to them. First Peter chapter two says we have, we are, we owe respect to all people, love to the brotherhood, fear to God, honor to the king. And we owe our employers something. Now, here's the deal. Not everything. Right? That's key. We don't owe our employers every time everything. And oftentimes our employers want to take everything. And so they begin to infringe on areas that don't belong to them, like family and church and things like that. Okay. But we do owe them something. And to live with integrity, Joseph recognizes that he owes his master something. Not only because of his kindness to him, but just because. He is his master, and he shouldn't be in a position where he wants to dishonor him. 
So again, I think there's an application there for every single one of us in our own workplaces, right? Um, it is easy for us to see those earthly authorities that we have um, as people that maybe we don't have to listen to or we don't have to do what is best for, but we do. We owe something to them. But the reality is, is this, and, and Joseph shows us this, it's never just about earthly authorities. Sometimes when we see those earthly authorities and we who are unjust to us, maybe, or unkind to us, you got a boss who's a jerk um, or demanding, um, you know, what you probably say to yourself in your own head is you say, well, you know what, I don't really owe that guy anything anyway. And therefore, I'm justified to treat him or act in any way I want to in, in, in this context as long as I don't get fired, right? Um, we think that way in our heads, but but Joseph shows us something else. I'm sure that he, we can imagine a scenario in which Joseph is thinking in his own head, I'm this guy's slave, right? He's not my friend. He's not my buddy. Um, I don't owe him anything. I'm here. I'm a captive here. Um, I, I don't owe this person anyway. And again, I think we can see how that any one of us might feel that way about our own employers or, or authorities in our lives at sometimes. But, but Joseph realizes something. It's never only about our earthly masters when it comes to these things, because we owe them something as a function of what we owe God. Notice that the bulk of Joseph's, Joseph's rebuttal to her advances are about what he owes his master. But notice also in verse 9, all of a sudden he shifts gears and he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So this act, if he were to give in to her lust, this act would be adultery, even if all parties involved consented to it, right? It would be a sin against God. Then the deception, the lying, the cover-up would be a sin against God. The New Testament makes clear that our integrity with our fellow man is connected to our integrity before God. And so in Colossians chapter 3, speaking specifically of slaves again, of bond servants and their masters, Paul writes, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not in a way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Right. So again, we see that connection there. Joseph is too faithful a man to sin in this way. Okay. He, he is a man of integrity, both on a, on a horizontal plane and on a vertical plane. But Potiphar's wife will not be denied. And so she sets this trap for Joseph. She waits for a day when the house is empty, when all of the other servants have been sent away, where she and, and Joseph can be alone and nobody else is around. So you've probably watched um, a nature show before, and you're, and you're aware of the concept of fight or flight. Right? We talk about it in our own sort of emotional responses to things, that, that when you are put in a situation of danger, there is a trigger that goes off in us, right? And it's our fight or flight response. Animals do it in the wild. They either say, I got to run or I got to stand my ground. We do it sometimes. Sometimes you get into an argument with somebody and like, sometimes you go, man, I just want to get out of here. And then other times you say, no, I'm, uh, we're going to go to the mattresses, right? And we're going to, we're going to fight this thing out. Well, 
Joseph is in a situation or fight or flight. But when it comes to temptation, the Bible would tend to say, you know what the better part of valor is? Is running. Okay? When you experience temptation in your life, the best thing most of the time is not for you to go, I'm going to see if I can, I can bow up to this thing and be strong against it. Like I'm going to take this temptation and I'm going to fight it. That's not the way the Bible usually talks. You know what it usually says? Flee. Run for your life from that temptation. When the temptation shows up, get out of there as quick as you can. And so all through the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, we see these ideas. Flee youthful passions, it says. Flee sexual immorality, the scriptures say. Paul advises Timothy, he's talking about all the different things that might derail a ministry. And he says arrogance or false doctrine that leads to divisions and strife, the love of money could do a derail a ministry. And you know what he says to uh, Timothy? He says, man of God, flee these things, like run from them. Don't even give them any kind of, of foothold. In every temptation, the Bible says, God will give you a way of what? A way of escape, right? It doesn't say a way of strength and resistance, okay? It doesn't say that every single time he's going to give you a way to stand up to this thing and say, I will not be moved. I'm a strong uh, in these things. I don't have to. That's not what it says. It says, when you're tempted, God will give you a way out. And if you are wise, you will take it and you will run to get away from it. So in, in addiction recovery, there's this mantra, uh, and it talks about the idea that when, when you're in addiction recovery, you have to change your people, places, and things. Okay. You have to stop going to the places you used to go to. You have to stop hanging out with the people that you used to hang out with. You have to stop doing the things that triggered you to to engage in in your addiction, okay? You know what that's saying? It's basically saying, flee, run. If you think you're strong enough in in the midst of addiction recovery that, oh, well, I can still engage with these things at a certain level and be strong enough to hold them back, you're fooling yourself. You're wrong. Run from these things. Get out of there. Put yourself in a situation where you're not in those things anymore. I hope you see the distinction from that and what I talked about last week with the canceling stuff, okay? Because they're not the same thing. Because you might hear me say this and go, wait, Ash, like last week you told us not to like see people as toxic and cancel them and like completely run from them. And now you're telling us, yeah, 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 you should totally run from them. But they're not the same thing. Right. One of those situations is you looking at another person with unforgiveness and saying, I reject you. What we're talking about today is looking at ourselves and recognizing that in our own weaknesses, um, we are not strong enough to stay there. So I probably and you've heard me say it probably multiple times when I was in college going through, you know, the dumb phase of the stuff that you do in college and, and being around the wrong people. And I came to a point in college where I said, you know what, guys, you're all my friends and I love you, but I can't hang out with you anymore. I just can't do it. I got to go somewhere else. I don't hate you. Um, I, I wish it weren't the case, but I can't be around you guys anymore because I know what you're going to be doing Friday night. And I and I'm not strong enough to say no to it. So I'm going to just go somewhere else. I'm going to get new friends. and I'm going to be around different people. That was, I think, the Holy Spirit saying, Ash, you got to flee. You've got to get out of here. You've got to go somewhere else. 
It's interesting. We skipped over. You'll probably have already noticed that if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks. We skipped over chapter 38 entirely because chapter 38 is not a story specifically about jo- Joseph, but it's about Judah in in his uh, daughter-in-law Tamar. And it is another Jerry Springer-esque episode in in the life of this family, right? Just uh the the bizarre tawdryness of the whole incident is is crazy. But you know what happens is that Judah's experience sets up as a foil in many ways for Joseph's, right? Judah owes Judah's sons owe Tamar something and they are unwilling to give it. Then Judah owes his other son, his young son, if you remember the story, and I won't get into the details, but he owes his young son to Tamar to be her husband, but he won't do it. And instead of living in integrity, and particularly in chastity, instead, Judah seeks to gratify his own lusts, and then creates this bizarre, incestuous scenario of weird descendants and and all these things like that, okay? Um Judah does not flee. Joseph is noble and wise and flees. Maybe that's the kind of thing that was going on that Judah was, I mean, that Joseph was telling on his brothers about. Maybe he was going to his father and saying, hey, dad, when all my brothers are out here in the wilderness shepherding, uh, they're not shepherding. Um, they're meeting prostitutes along the way, right? Maybe this is the kind of thing that was going on that his father needed to know about. But Joseph is more noble more wise, more faithful. And so he flees this woman. Except what happens is, as the saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And she is scorned. She has been rejected multiple times by this person who, in their culture, is beneath her. And she finally decides that she's not going to take it anymore. And so she comes and she falsely accuses Joseph of of violating her. So we talked about last week how betrayal is a key aspect of Jesus' passion. Betrayal is a key piece of the understanding of his his suffering, of, of what he went through. But here's the deal. So is being falsely accused. That's another piece. Again, we, we, the cross makes sense, the, the crown of thorns, the, the spear in the side, the, the beating, all of those things play big into the picture. But sitting in the periphery is another one of these, these things that happen Jesus being falsely accused is, it the key, is a key piece of, of his suffering. And the scriptures are pretty clear about the idea of false accusations. If you think about it, what the ninth commandment, right? What is the ninth commandment? That we would not bear false witness. Now, a lot of times we generalize that phrase and say, well, it's about, it means no, no lying, right? And that's certainly true. That's an implication of it. But specifically the language of it, is about falsely accusing other people, maybe even the context of a trial or something like that, of making accusations about somebody that are false, saying someone has done something when they haven't. And man, the Old Testament law gets very specific and 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 prescribes a heavy penalty for people who make false accusations. Deuteronomy 19 says this. It says, the judges shall, in, if there's, a, there's a situation somebody's accused somebody of something, right? The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear 
and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not have pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That is to say, if I accuse you of something that will mean your death, and it is discovered that I have falsely accused you, then that means my death. At least that's what the Old Testament prescribed. Jesus himself faces the false accusations of the Pharisees. And this is one of those types that is pointing us forward. Jesus is accused of blasphemy. That is saying um, awful, obscene, um, false things about God. He is accused of treason against the Roman state. He is accused even of sorcery in a sense. That is, when when he does these miraculous things, what do the Pharisees say? He's doing it by the power of Beelzebub, right? Um, Jesus is falsely accused uh, in a number of cases. And what we see is that the righteous being falsely accused is, is another theme. It's a typology that we're meant to take note of and to recognize when Jesus, when we get to Jesus, he is falsely accused and he is executed for those false accusations. Even though no sin was found in him, he is killed as a man who is a criminal under those false accusations. And you know what Jesus warns us of? He says, the same thing's going to happen to you, church. You are going to experience the same thing. Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, going through all the blessed are, what is the very last one in verse 11? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a common occurrence, right? The people of God are falsely accused of things. So here's here's a little side application real quick. When we as Christians have done something sinful, we should repent, right? If we do something sinful, we should openly repent. If we have acted in any way that legitimately brings derision on Jesus or on his church, then we should own up to it. We should say, yeah, man, that was something that I should have done, the church should have done. We acted in an unloving way or an ungospel way or something like that, okay? But here's the deal. We also need to say it is the nature of the world to accuse the church falsely. It is the nature of the world to make accusations about how the church has acted that are categorically wrong and untrue. I've experienced that. I have had several numerous people over the years who have said, well, you know what? That church treated me this way, and that's why I didn't go back, or I don't believe in Jesus, or I've rejected the faith, or whatever else. And I say... Folks, that's not how it went down. It just didn't happen that way. The things that they are saying we did are lies. We should expect that, Jesus says. But also, we should be honest about our shortcomings, but we should also be honest when the world is making false accusations and say, no, that's not what happened. That is not the way it went down. That is not our attitude. Um, you are putting things on us that are not true. So in another similarity in the midst of these false accusations, you may have noticed this, but it's sort of subtle in the text. In another similarity and foreshadowing, did you notice Potiphar's response? 
So it says after he hears the accusations, it says his anger is kindled. But it's not specific about the target of that anger exactly. All right. So here's the deal. A violation of this type, if a slave had attempted to rape a a noble woman, that would have been a capital crime. Okay. The punishment for that is death. Absolutely. There's not any other um, possibility out there. And yet what happens in this story, instead of being put to death, Joseph is sent to what may amount to a white collar prison. Right. It's the prison where the kings, uh, the people that he has a problem with have gone. It's not these. I mean, these aren't like, um, you know, thugs and 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 murderers these are people who have sinned against the king and against this crown and against the government and and things like that and that's where joseph ends up why well i think maybe because potiphar knows what kind of woman his wife is and he also knows what kind of man joseph is and he can't just there in public call his wife a liar and do nothing about this situation but he seems to know that everything is not what she claims. Guess what? That's pointing forward again in a typology. When we get to the story of Jesus' trial, what do we have? We have a picture where the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, looks out at the Pharisees who were accusing Jesus of all these things. And what does the Bible say? It says, Pilate knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Pilate knew that what was actually going on is it was the jealousy and anger of the Pharisees that were falsely accusing Jesus. That's what was really happening. But again, Jesus is condemned. Why? Because of probably the weakness of Pilate and his desire to pander to the Jewish leaders. The same thing is a picture that we see there in in uh, Joseph's story. So again, according to Mosaic law, according to Deuteronomy 19, Jesus, if he is falsely accused and they cry out for his crucifixion, what should be the, the, the punishment? Those people who falsely accused him should be crucified. And yet what happens? Jesus instead is crucified for us. Jesus is crucified even for those who have accused him falsely. Instead, Jesus forgives his accusers and goes to the cross in their place. And so again, we see this picture that is being painted in a typology that we are looking towards as we read Joseph's stories, we learn these things, and then at the same time, we are looking forward to Jesus. But I want to zoom in on one last thing, and I know we're we're way out of time, okay? Um, but here's the deal. I think the main point of this passage is not the things that we've already talked about, although those are all important pieces and implications. But there's something else going on in the text that is the main idea that we are meant to see. And it has to do with this little word, and you may have noticed it, it keeps on getting repeated, and a concept that gets keeps on getting repeated, that is the word Lord. The word Lord keeps on popping up in this passage. And the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord gave Joseph success. And the other, uh, the, the Potiphar saw that the Lord was blessing Joseph, and therefore, and the Lord was with him. And it says that eight times in the passage. But something even more particular is going on here. Because that word Lord is not the generic word in Hebrew Adonai. It is the word Yahweh. In all eight of those circumstances, 
Yahweh is the covenant name of God. Um, we, we, it is, it is depicted with the four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H. It's called the Tetragrammaton. It's the four letters that are the name of God. And it is distinct from those more generic names for God, like Elohim, which basically means God Almighty, or Adonai, which means Lord in, in a more generic sense. It is as close to a personal name for God as we have in the scriptures. If God's got a first name, it is Yahweh. And that word is used eight times in this passage, and guess how many other times in the entire story of Joseph? Thirteen chapters encompassing the story of Joseph. How many times is the word Yahweh used after this? One. Eight times in this chapter, one time in the other twelve. Okay, why is that? What's what, what is? It's conspicuous, right? If you're a Hebrew person reading this, you're going to say that's weird. It. Why is all of a sudden? Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the fact that Yahweh is with Joseph, that the, that Yahweh is watching out for Joseph. Why is this all of a sudden popping up? Well, I think we can probably um, see what we are being taught there. Joseph continues to hit these lows, right? He is betrayed. He is falsely accused. He's imprisoned. Soon he will be forgotten in prison, basically. I don't know about you, but those would be prime moments in my life for me to think, uh, God has abandoned me, right? Wherever God was, he is gone. Um, I have been forgotten. I am, I'm stuck here in this situation. Uh, if God ever cared for me, it's obvious that he doesn't now because these things keep on happening. But here's the deal. That isn't the case. And the reiteration of that fact over and over again, in some ways in the midst of his greatest trial, it would be, I mean, it's hard to balance that with being betrayed by his brothers. That's a pretty big deal too. But in the midst of this greatest trial, I don't know about you guys, I didn't put this in here, but like my biggest fear, my biggest fear is being accused of something that I cannot prove I didn't do. I have nightmares about it regularly. Okay. Um, not like every night or anything like that, but like it's my biggest fear. Um, that someone would accuse me of something and I would go, I didn't do this, but there is absolutely no way that I can prove that I didn't do this. Joseph's in that situation. And yet the covenant faithfulness of God is reiterated eight times. Most of those specifically referencing the fact that God is with Joseph, God is for Joseph, God is working and blessing and causing him to prosper despite his circumstances. So here's the takeaway for us. You already know it because it's one we come back to often, but it bears repeating because it sits at the heart of so much doubt and so much heartache when people are going through difficult times. Difficulty in your life doesn't mean God isn't there. Full stop. Difficulty in your life doesn't mean God isn't there. If you think to yourself, God's presence means no conflict, If God were really with me, I would have no difficulty. Then all I can say to you is this. Stop thinking that. That just isn't the way the universe is. Difficulty in your life does not mean the absence of God. 
If God was with me, man, everything would be going well. Wrong. It's just not true. You can feel that way all you want to, right? You can say, man, I just, I just, you know, I've, I've, I've heard enough health and wealth kind of sermons that I feel like if God really loved me, he would just be giving me all the things I wanted. He doesn't. That just isn't the way God works. And while the ultimate reasons for the things that we are going through may be beyond our comprehension, right? Sometimes they're Job-type stories where you get to the end of Job and God's like, here's why I'm doing these things, because I'm God and I'm in control of everything and you're not. And you're sort of like, well, that wasn't really an answer. Uh, thanks, though, I guess. I, I, it's, it's good to know that you're here and engaging with me, but I would have liked more of an answer than that. But God doesn't owe us those answers. And so while we may not know the big answers for these things, I think although we still get glimpses of how they're working out in our own lives, you know that there are lessons that you've learned that you couldn't have been taught any other way than the hardships you have gone through. You had to learn those lessons that way. If you were a parent, you don't remove all difficulty from your child's life. You just don't, right? Because you know that that would make them a mess, Right? Um, like they would be this entitled little jerky brat. Um, and that's not the, they're pampered and coddled. They're going to end up a bigger mess than the mess that they found themselves in. That's not what you want. And so in maybe some little way, that's what God's doing with us as he works in us and matures us and grows us. But even in the face of injustice, in the face of incredible hardship, what is important is that the Lord is with him. That's what's important. The promise that God will neither leave nor forsake us, that Jesus has promised to be with us even to the end of the age. That's our hope. That's our strength. Not our circumstances. That's the point of this passage. That's the big picture. That's the reality that Jesus comes to when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows that God is with him. He says, man, I don't want this bad thing to happen, and I don't like it, but Lord, if this is your will, then so be it, because this is what you want. Joseph is learning the same thing. He's learning that God is going to be with him all the way through this thing. Could God have chosen another way to fulfill his promises and salvation? To Man, I sure he could, but he didn't. This is the way that God would have things. And in the midst of that, it's important to know that God is with us, not distant from us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Asking that God would teach us those things and the hard things that are coming. Because they're coming. They will. The difficulties of life will show up. It's the scary thing of having a having a, a majority young church. Um, Greg Long... Uh, knows about the hard things that happen in life because he has an aging congregation. So there have been times in Greg's ministry where he said, I'm doing one or two funerals a week. The realities of the difficulty and hardships and pain and, and difficulty of life are present every single second, right? In a younger church, in some ways they're not as present. They, they show up in their own ways, right? They show up in miscarriages, they show up in difficulties with jobs and finances, with families. They show up in illnesses that begin to appear because, you know, when you're 22, you're fine. But all of a sudden, you're 32, and you're starting to get some creaks, right? And then those those crazy, weird things, the ways your body breaks down, they start to appear. And you didn't know about those things. You weren't ready for them, and all of a sudden, they're there. We have our own things that show up, but we know this, that God is with us 
despite the difficulties, every second of our lives, God is with us. So let's ask God that he would show us those things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer um, and ask that he would impress these things upon our hearts. Father God, we know that you will allow any number of difficult things to happen in our lives, God, that you have not promised to um, remove all difficulty from our lives. You have not promised to give us ease or comfort um, in, in uh, the events of our lives. But what you have promised is that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, that, that Jesus has promised that he will be with us even until the end of the age. That all of our hope, hope, that all of our strength is in the fact that you are with us. Father, as, as Moses prayed as they entered the promised land, God, I don't want to go unless you are with us. Unless you go into the promised land with us, I don't want to go. Father, uh, that is a prayer in a sense that we don't have to pray because we know that you are with us because of who Jesus Christ is, that you are with us in Christ, that we belong to him, that our lives are bound up with his life now. God, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, that he will be with us to the end of the age through whatever we go through. God, as we do foolish and stupid things, he will be there. God, as we are faithful and people of integrity and character, he will be there at our side. Father, that he will love and care, that he will guide and direct, that he will minister and chasten, that he will discipline and reward, but that he will always be present with us and that we can count on that. God, help us to hold on to these truths in the midst of difficulty. When we are going through our own trials, help us to know these truths. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song. Thank you. 
Amen. Uh, good to see you. Hope you have a great week. A um, couple things real quick. Remember, sign-up sheet for uh, the Good Little Book Study is on the table out there. If you'd like to be a part of that, go ahead and put your name down. Um, you can give me money now if you want to, but you if you don't have it with you, that's fine too, and I, I can get it later. But go ahead and that way I can get the books ordered if you want to be a part of that. Um, if you could, stick around for a couple extra minutes and help us tear down, but be super careful if you're taking stuff across the way. Um, don't be carrying a big heavy box and step on that ice in a weird way and, and, uh, fall and get hurt. So, um, anyway, hopefully by next week, we won't have to worry about that and just be rainy and cold instead of icy and cold. So, um, here's benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week. Yeah. 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 Yeah.